0: everybody and welcome to episode 77 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode I'm joined by Bruno McDonald, the author of 666 songs to make you bang your head until you die. It is a fantastic book. Uh, Bruno was on several months back talking about the book. We took a look at some of the Metallica songs that appear in the book. There's about a dozen that make up uh Part of the 666 songs. But he is back today. To focus specifically on the year 1986. A huge monumental year. For Metallica. With the release of their third album. Master Puppets. And for thrash metal in general. So many legendary classic albums. Released that year. That are so important. To the history of. Of thrash metal and heavy metal in general so we look at the year of 1986 let's jump into it here is my conversation with bruno mcdonald My guest today makes his triumphant return to Metallicast. He is the author of, I mean, I'm not sure there's a book title more metal than this, 666 songs to make you bang your head until you die. The one, the only, Mr. Bruno McDonald. Bruno, welcome back to Metallicast.
1: Thank you so much for having me back, Brandon. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Last time you were on... We went into some of the, not all, but some of the Metallica songs that uh, appear in your book. Um, they have uh, maybe like a dozen. Uh, they That's make right. up maybe like a dozen of the 666 songs featured, and it, it's a very interesting book because you chronicle really the history of heavy metal and rock and roll um, and pop music and kind of Anything that can be classified as metal in some degree is featured in that book, but uh, from all time classics to really obscure songs and artists, it's uh, a, a really great read. And you, the way the book is structured, is sort of year by year by year, and we are going to focus a bit on metal in the year nineteen. Such a monumental year for metal. I mean, when you just look at the big four alone, you have Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth all releasing arguably the best albums of their career. Definitely fan-favorite albums.
1: Okay, well, you say arguably, and obviously I'm going to argue with you because there's, <laughs> there's no way that those, those, those albums are the best of any of those bands. Um, well,
0: uh, I, I, before we continue, I, I, I'm going to warn everybody. There's going to be hot takes. We are going to debate. And, Bruno, tell everybody now, listen, in the Metallicast Show, where they can send their hate mail to you. Let's just get that out of the way right now. When you get really, when they're really riled up, hearing some of your hot takes, because I, I, think I know what a couple of them are going to be, and uh, there might be fisticuffs. So, <laughs> okay,
1: I'm I'm always happy to engage with people on Twitter. I'm I'm Bruno McDonald one on Twitter, and yeah. uh, I'm also happy to, to if if you'll if you'll permit me, Brandon. I'm also happy to uh, to scroll with people on the Metallicast um, Twitter as well yes um, so but i am sometimes when i when i if i if, if i come across as uh, uh as being needlessly antagonistic it's not that uh that no. I'm, being, I'm, I'm not trying to i'm not to, trying to be deliberately iconoclastic i'm not trying to um to rubbish anyone else's opinions yeah so i i, I really I, I truly think if, if you genuinely think that Master of Puppets is Metallica's best album or the best album of all time, I'm not trying to change your mind. Um, all art is subjective, music especially so. Sure, and yeah. it, it, it gladdens my heart that um, in 2021 that we can still talk about this album that came out a thousand years ago and have such Absolutely. passionate opinions about it yeah. because I think that that speaks to... Um, how much this music means to us. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's a tribute to Metallica's legacy and also the, the enduring legacy of, of heavy metal as a genre that people can get so worked up about something that came up so long ago. It's At the end of the day, my opinion on Master of Puppets, my opinion on Metallica, really doesn't matter. What matters is the millions of people around the world, including you and I, who adore this band and this band having enriched our lives that's that's their legacy that's much much more important it's, it's brought you and i together it's brought Absolutely, so many yeah. people together um and that is that's the important thing that's much more important than than whether i personally think that orion is a deeply overrated incredibly tedious <laughs> star <laughs> well you know,
0: and that is exactly the reason why I wanted you to come back on. Not to, uh, you know, all joking aside, um, this show's not about hot takes, but everybody has a different opinion. And if you can uh, back up your opinion, and um, it, it, I, I want to hear. I want to hear why something is your favorite. Could be a personal reason. Could be. uh uh, just your musical preference and there's no right or wrong in any of this so like we're going to disagree on things we're gonna have a friendly debate maybe sometimes i'm kidding about the hate mail (laughs) but uh but you know it's all that this is why i want you on the episode to give your two cents i can give my two cents we're gonna agree on some things we're gonna have strong disagreements on other things i think um but it's all in good fun, and at the end of the day, none of it matters. So, people, do not get riled up. This, <laughs> but it is really fun. I think to hear, you know, somebody like yourself who's very knowledgeable about Metallica, about heavy metal history. I, I value your opinion, and I want to hear your opinions, especially if they are not the uh, a popular opinion, because I think you will have a great way of articulating why you feel the way that you feel
1: thank you that's very kind of you to say i mean i think i think this was all triggered uh, when you and richard did your lulu episode and you in the run-up to that because you you subjected to yourself uh, you subjected yourself to i think a, a week of preparation where you were just listening to lulu on a daily yeah. basis yeah. and I, I think i think all Metallicast Uh, listeners should commend you for your extraordinary (laughs) research and (laughs) diligence in that. Uh, I I am a defender of Lulu, but even so, to listen to it day after day in the name of research, I I tip my hat to you, sir. But I think in the course of that, you posted a link on Twitter to Pumping Blood, I believe, and I think it Mm -hmm. was on the Pumping Blood link where I said I would rather listen to this than Orion, um, which I presume puts me in a minority of probably one in the Metallica Metallica <laughs> fraternity,
0: yeah, I think that is probably a safe bet. I'm not sure even Lou Reed would agree with you if he was alive today, <laughs> but uh <laughs> um, but yeah, it sort of stemmed from there, and I was like, all right, this is gonna be a fun episode if Bruno wants to do this. So I reached out to you, and it the, it's so hard to focus in on a career as diverse and accomplished as Metallica and as long as Metallica. You know, we're 40 years now. Um, So I was like, let's focus in on a couple of the big moments, you know, maybe like that 1991 period or, and we settled on 1986, because I feel like that's sort of where the, even if it's not their most, popular album it, when you look at commercial sales um, a lot of the thrash bands at the time Metallica included release albums that are very uh, still very popular but also very critically acclaimed yeah
1: 1986 is, is kind of an interesting year because it, it is the classic year for thrash metal because yeah. as you correctly said in the opening um, three of the big four put out albums there and um, one thing that's kind of interesting uh, when you actually look at the figures and the dates and the chronology is that uh, al- although this stuff came out in 86, it's actually 87 when it kicks in. To me there's a, um, a parallel, and I'm not sure how how, how much scrutiny this analogy will, will withstand, but I-, I think there's something to it. It's a, a little like punk uh, a decade before. So in the early 70s or let's say say around 74 75 you've got the new york dolls and patty smith putting out these extraordinarily uh, what turned out to be extraordinarily influential albums that really shaped how punk rock was going to emerge and develop um but no one bought them at the time uh, right. and then in 76 you've got uh, the Ramones putting out their first album and completely changing the course of rock and roll at that point. There is no one, with the possible exception of Rush, there's no one in rock who was left unchanged by the advent of the Ramones in 1976, including, of course, of course, uh, Metallica, hence why they appeared on that uh, excellent Rob Zombie tribute album, uh, We're a Happy Family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in 1976, you've got the Ramones putting out their first album. You've got the Dand putting out the first uh, British punk rock single, New Rose, which subsequently gets covered by Guns N' Roses. And you've got the first Sex Pistols single as well. But none of those were commercial successes at the time. Um, And it was really 1977 when punk became a big deal, because initially it's the hardcore fans and the music critics who latch onto it but then it actually takes a while to filter through into the public arena which is exactly what happened with uh the sex pistols so anarchy in the uk their first single was a kind of minor top 40 success but then the stuff that they put out in 77 was huge because by that point they were a household name and in a way you can kind of draw that analogy with um what was happening in thrash metal precisely a a decade later so when um when 1986 rolls around metallica have had very very minor success like people know who they are people who who read the rock press know who they are uh, and ride the lightning has crept into the lower reaches of the um american and the british top 100 but they don't have a gold album they don't even have a silver album in britain where you have to sell like so like 12 copies to get a silver album in britain and <laughs> Um, Slayer, for example, who were—I remember at the time through reading Kerrang! and the British music press—that Slayer were they were a, a band that everyone knew at the time, but they had they had no charting records at all, as far as I know, in Britain and America, none nothing before Rain in Blood charted at all, and um, Master of Puppets um, it peaked at. Uh, it peaked at number 29 in America in October of 86, uh, and that's six months after it was actually released. And the, the reason for that, as far as I know, was the Aussie tour that they did through right, from yeah. March through August, which was a, a real pivotal turning point in their career. Sure. So it's at, it's at that point that they go from being a, ba- a band where, oh yeah, I've heard of those guys, to suddenly... This is a band that could potentially fill arenas, which is what what they did on the, the next stage of their cycle. And um, R- "Rain in Blood," um, again, I'm I'm going to show off my my nerdy chart research skills. "Rain in Blood" peaked at number ninety four in the states uh, in December. So, in fact, five days before Christmas, "Rain in Blood" hits its 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 American chart peak, which I, I like. That I think you know you want you want to slay a Christmas. Then you know, buy your kid, <laughs> in written in yeah, blood. Yeah. Um, so really, um, yes, you're absolutely right. Leo. These these iconic albums came out in 1986, but they kind of they were kind of slow burners. And then it's in 1987 where these bands become not exactly household names, but suddenly in '87, it's it's oh these these guys are a, a viable commercial entity.
0: Sure. And just looking at Metallica, for example, you know, you can see when you look at, you know, their formation in 1981 and then 10 years later with the release of the Black Album in 1991, when you trace back that first decade, you can see that slow build, that slow grind, that the gradual progression to, you know, superstardom. And it's funny because some people thought when the Black Album came out like they were an overnight success because they were just unfamiliar with what came before. But the reality is, as we know, is that it was 10 long years of clubs, theaters, releasing those seminal albums, uh, getting that Ozzy Osbourne tour like you mentioned, which was huge for them, playing, uh, you know, getting key slots of major festivals, whether it was day on, uh dan the green in 1985 or the monsters of rock tour um a, a couple years after that so it's all these things that create this perfect storm for when the black um comes out they can become the biggest metal band in the world of all time
1: yeah i, I think i think you've put your finger on it there because it really was on the road that they proved themselves and um, as as great as um, Ride the Lightning is and as okay as Killer All and Master of Puppets are, um, <laughs> it, it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was really live where they proved themselves. And, um, yes, you mentioned Day on the Green in 85, and I think um, that year was also when they did their first appearance at the Monsters of Rock Festival in Britain as well. I think they were kind of low on the bill. I th- if, I, if I remember correctly, that year's Easy Top, I think, was... a were headlining the monsters of rock and Metallica were on at like some mid afternoon slot. And then yeah. as you, as you say, the Aussie tour, a huge turning point because suddenly there, are uh, o- Aussie was massive in 1986. Um, he, I, I don't think I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there was any hard rock act that was bigger than Aussie in 86. And he's, you know, he, he starts creating his legacy in well, he, obviously he starts creating his legacy with Black Sabbath but as a solo artist, um, 1981 is when it really takes off for him in America and by the time 1986 rolls around, he is a superstar and right. he, he, he can put out an album like the Ultimate Sin which I think even Aussie fans would admit is a pretty pretty patchy album and it's sure, still yeah. a, a platinum album um, very very successful. And so um, in the same way as he'd done with Motley Crue in 84, I think, where he took them out and he really broke them big nationwide, mm-hmm. he did the same thing with Metallica. There's a, there's a, a story that, that um, Metallica, I think, tell, or, or maybe it's someone even from Ozzy's camp, about when they first joined that tour, they were too in awe of Ozzy to, to even speak to him, and they'd be blasting you know, Iron Man or something on their bus, and Aussie uh, was wondering, well, you know, are they, as we would say in England, taking the piss? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, are, are they <laughs> mocking me for my for my sure. uh, you know Jurassic Metal history? Yeah. But in fact, actually, they were they were blasting that stuff because they love it. Um, and and then that turned out to be a, a, a very mutually beneficial relationship. And that, so I think, yeah, as you say, when you look at those ten years before the Black Album, there are those key moments, and definitely that Aussie tour. Was one of them. Then, then the, the next really big one would be the one video, uh, sure, because yeah. the, uh, getting one onto MTV. That, in in Lars's own words, they became MTV whores at that point, and they, and, and so these these are the things where their popularity really takes a massive step up. But in fact, actually, and I think, I think we maybe briefly touched on this the last time I was on your show that um, that actually. Justice was already a platinum sensation long before they put one out. So yeah. they, they, they were well on their way, I think, but, but there were these kind of events that really sort of kicked it all up a notch. Right.
0: Like, uh, you know, to your point that you're making too, like in Justice for All, they're not only they on MTV, but they're performing one live at the Grammy Awards. They're up for that, you know, what is now the infamous... Grammy nomination that they lose to Jethro Tull but they they are part of the mainstream part of the establishment before the black album comes down it's just that was kind of the you know the perfect album in so many ways the perfect songs the perfect producer the perfect band the perfect sound to kind of just say all right we are just putting our foot down as we are the band right now but it, all those seeds were planted years and years um, before, you know, over that first decade. And it really, like I said, in Justice for All, they already have one foot in the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the other thing to, to um, commend is that they were always a step above their contemporaries. So sure. as much as I... Personally, I'm not a huge fan of Master of Puppets, and that's just personal preference. But if you if you listen to what was coming out around 1985, 1986 in the thrash arena, Master of Puppets is clearly um, much more sophisticated and much more ambitious. So whether whether you whether you think that whether, whether you think that the end result is better than all the others is as, as, we, as we mentioned before. That's, that's entirely subjective. But I think what is not really up to much debate is that Metallica definitely had their sights set higher than everyone else. So there's a lot of thrash from that era that I and other people enjoy. But with a lot of it, you can trace it back to what's come before. So there's a lot of great thrash albums, including the ones that came out in 86, where you can listen to it and you can say... Uh, they've been listening to a lot of Judas Priest, uh, so the, the the Priest influence on what became thrash metal is absolutely huge. And people were doing those kind of squally guitar solos, and they were doing those Rob Halford style shrieks, including yeah. Slayer. Um, oh, so, yeah. a, as you know, Angel I'm a of huge. Death. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that nails its colours to the mast within seconds of that album opening. So, as you know, I'm a huge Slayer fan and I would argue until I'm blue in the face that Slayer have been much more consistently good than Metallica Um, have they been as ambitious as Metallica or as sophisticated as Metallica or as daring as Metallica absolutely not so it's a kind of trade-off so um, with Metallica you get the highs you've got Master of Puppets you have got Ride the Lightning you've got the Black Album Um, and you've got uh, later works where we can debate the the merits of, Um, you've got the highs, but then you've also got the lows. So although I would defend Lulu, for example, I would also very much defend St. Anger. Most people obviously would regard those as as lows. So um, that's the trade-off. You get these moments of genius because you get these moments where they stumble because they take chances, which Slayer simply never did. So yeah. as as I as I think I said on your show last time, in my opinion, Slayer got it absolutely right um, on their first album, and then they did it again, thirteen yeah. times or whatever <laughs> it was. Right, so yeah. you can you can you could pick any Slayer album from any point in their trajectory, even that um, the the covers album that they did. You could put it on. You know exactly what you're getting, and you, in my opinion, you know you're going to enjoy it. Um, but but you don't get the moments of daring, and. Uh, um, another analogy that kind of occurred to me, and this is probably not an original thought, so I apologise to anyone that I'm inadvertently plagiarising, was that with Master of Puppets, there's, you could kind of draw a parallel to what Rush did as well. So Rush put out three albums um, to increasingly dwindling sales. So by the time they put out Caress of Steel, no one's interested you know, they've toured with Kiss, they've toured relentlessly, they've put out these three albums, and no one cares. And at that point, Mercury Records is ready to say, Look, you, you guys are done, we're throwing no more money at this. And right. as a big kind of middle finger to their record company, Rush do 2112, um, which is a huge step up from what, what they've done before and is an album that is, you know, correctly. Uh, regarded as a as a landmark by lots of people, including certainly Mr. Hammett, um, sure, and yeah. so you could you could sort of take the view that that's. I don't think the I don't think that the evolution is quite as jarring in Metallica's case because, to me, the, the huge evolution in Metallica's sound was between Kill 'Em All, which to me is a kind of good time hard rock record. It's it's really to me. Kill 'em All is an unremarkable album. It's an album that I'm fond of. If, if you put on any one of its songs, I'd enjoy it, but I don't think it's any kind of landmark. I don't think there's anything especially original about it. I don't think there's anything hugely memorable about it. But then the giant leap that they took from Kill 'em All to Ride the Lightning, which is a very sophisticated piece of work, you know, you've got them doing stuff like Fade to Black or even. Um, for whom the bell tolls, where they cram right. twenty-eight riffs into three minutes.
0: Yeah, um, the call of Cthulhu. and
1: absolutely. So to me, the the leap from lightning to puppets is not as um, remarkable as the leap from Kill em all to Ride the Lightning. Um, and but but nonetheless, if you listen to Master of Puppets in the context of the other stuff that was coming out at the time, it's 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 another world it really is another world because it's so much more ambitious than everything else which is no disrespect to all the other bands you know peace peace sales half of peace sales is magnificent but um and mustaine is a, is a very accomplished writer but was he doing anything as sophisticated as master of puppets at that point he wasn't in my opinion
0: yeah no i agree with that i think you know master puppets is my personal favorite metallic album but the the formula was established with ride the lightning and then that formula was copied on master puppets and then uh also copied on injustice for all to a lesser extent because that album became a little bit more progressive than any of the previous three records um but you know that that formula was established on Ride the Lightning from the acoustic intro that starts the album to the ballad on track four, the instrumental near the end of the record. You know, you kind of have like a nice thrash sandwich, you know, where you have thrash heavy at the beginning, thrash area, thrashier songs at the end. Um, so it, it definitely ride the lightning established that formula. I think that that formula was just slightly perfected on Master Puppets. That's my personal opinion. Where, you know, I I appreciate the increase in sophistication, as you said, and the the songs just seem uh, the, the the songs have the right balance of being more complex and progressive, but without, um, you know, but still with the songs, the verse, the melodies, the chorus being super strong. Um, and I'm not knocking Injustice for all because I love that album. Uh, but you know, one could argue that injustice for all loses its way in some of the songs in terms of, uh, when you get to the soul sections, it, it, and that was the catalyst of course, for the black album, right? They wanted to write these short, uh, more, uh, dare I use pop music, uh, song structures with, you know, its typical verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, chorus. Um, And, but I think Master Puppets just sort of captures that, makes it a little bit more progressive than Ride the Lightning without completely pushing those progressive boundaries to the extent that they would after that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's where you and I would, would begin to diverge because one of the things that I like about Lightning is that it does all of the same things, but in a much more concise fashion. And the, the thing that really puts me off Master of Puppets and the thing that stops me acclaiming it in the way that most other Metallica fans were, would is that it just goes on and on and on and on. Um, it, it's an incredibly long album and it feels like an incredibly long album. I remember when, um, when Def Leppard put out Hysteria, um, Joe Elliott very proudly saying, there was there was a big deal at the time because they managed to fit that amount of music onto a single album which was a technical accomplishment because and I'm here I'm wandering into territory that I really don't understand but in terms <laughs> of the, in terms of the dynamics that you can get onto a vinyl record um you you don't want to put that much music onto a vinyl record because then you don't have the space for the grooves to allow for all of the dynamics. So I apologize to any audiophiles in, the, in your audience who are just appalled by the way that I've simplistically mangled that point. <laughs> you, you would customarily expect with albums that are as long as puppets or hysteria that they would put it over a double album because then there's right. more room to, to fit all, the, all, all that audio information on the vinyl. So it, both of those albums were technical accomplishments. <laughs> I, you can tell I've had a glass of wine because I can't <laughs> say the word accomplishments anymore. Um, it's okay. I tripped um, over
0: a thrashier before, hence yeah. my thrashier... <laughs> and I've, and case, I've not had any wine, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's because you're a responsible parent, whereas I'm a wanton <laughs> rock and roller. But to me, the, the difference um, there would be that Hysteria is um, nearly an hour long, but it's, it's full of much shorter songs with poppy choruses and poppy verses, and it doesn't feel like a chore. My problem with Master of Puppets is that it feels like hard, hard work. And so Battery, fantastic. Master of Puppets, fantastic. Um, Disposable Heroes, which you and I talked about at length when I was last I on your show, absolutely fantastic. But then you've got these songs that, to me, um, really do just plod. I think that the the, the greatest offender for me would be um, The Thing That Should Not Be, where... If I if I saw Metallica live and they you know and and Jason was saying oh you know this song is the what did how did he use to do it like this is the heaviest thing ever or whatever you're going yeah and um, and I would just think oh I have to spend the next next eight minutes of my life <laughs> listening to this really really plodding song um, or we're still having to listen to Orion which is just that's Metallica Muzak, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I do like Metallica when they play instrumentals, and um, Suicide and Redemption is one of my favourite Lack like, Today uh, Metallica songs. So it's not that I have anything inherently against Metallica doing instrumentals, it's just them doing boring instrumentals, which to me is Orion. I didn't get it at the time, and however many years later, I still don't get it. Um, and then when they wrap the album up with um, uh, uh, Damage Incorporated, it's like it's too little, too late at that point. So so for, for me, the really skippable th- songs on that are The Thing That Should Not Be, um, Damage, Leper Messiah, which is really a kind of aspitalica by numbers, um, and Orion. Um,
0: and so I, I to your point, I do think there is a uh, you know a youthful energy on the first two records that is not really captured on the previous records because they're not the same youths. You know when you look at the you know uh, when they wrote and recorded Kill em All, a lot of those songs were written when they were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old they're recording the record let's say it, it's just it's a it's a fun record. It's as I think it's as fun as Metallica can get on record. You're never going to hear James Hetfield sing lyrics like "When we start to rock, we never want to stop again." After "Kill 'em All," you know it's just like a fun metal record that when you put it in your car, you're going to start going the speed limit and then just gradually increase speed without realizing it because before you know it. Mortar breath comes on or whiplash comes on and your foot just gently presses on that gas and that car just keeps going and going and going. Then you see the sirens behind you and then you get a ticket and then it's not good. But Ride the Lightning, I think still, you know, what you said before is exactly it. I can not personally think of a band off the top of my head that had that gigantic of a leap from their first album to their second album. Usually you can trace it over a few records. I feel like when bands make a big growth, but it's like night and day, but I still think that ride the lightning still captures a lot of that youthful energy because songs like ride the lightning and even call of Cthulhu were written, um, you know, during those early years, Hence, Mustaine still getting, a couple songwriting credits on some of the tracks, even, and that's like immediately following Kill 'em All. That's out in '83. Lightning's out in '84. They're 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 just kind of still in their youth. Where I feel like Master of Puppets is kind of the first. This is not like a word I want to use because it's uh, I'm afraid it's going to discredit the first two records, which is not my intention. But it's their first, like, quote, serious record where I feel like there's not, like, um, you know, the, the a lot of the perhaps cheese that was in some of those early lyrics have kind of disappeared. Um, but you have and you have that layer of sophistication with the more complex song structures. But uh, I do think, you know, to your point, Master Puppets does lack a little bit of that youthful energy. And, and by far uh, you know, you're absolutely right. When ride the lightning is a more concise record. And when you listen to ride the lightning start to finish, I do think as a Metallica fan, you're instantly like, all right, well let's go back to fight fire with fire and start that bad boy all over again. Whereas if you listen to master puppet start to finish, I feel like I've listened to an amazing masterpiece of a record but I'm not sure my gut instinct is to immediately go back to battery and listen to it because it is that little bit extra in length, but that's really also the first album that kind of starts that Metallica's career, right? Where, you know, they're not a band known for their short albums, uh, where, you know, years later in load, that's literally packed to like the maximum capacity of a compact disc at that time in 1996. And then you know, and even with, uh, and some people, uh, in, their critics will say, "Well, yeah, they have a hard time editing themselves." Right? A lot of people said, "I personally love Hardwired to Self-Destruct. I love the songs on it." A lot of people who are maybe not as die-hard Metallica fan as me would say, "There's a really great album on that," and they can do without, you know, disc two or whatever. So it, it's sort of the start of that long form album they do not have a lot of when you look at bands that are comparable that have been around for 40 years they don't have a large catalog of songs they don't have a large catalog of albums compared to other bands and artists who have been around for 40 years but they pack a lot in when they do have a release
1: i think you're absolutely right and i think also, also, and again, I come back to the, to the point that I made at the top of the show, which is that, that, that my, my opinion is irrelevant. And I'm not, if, if you think the Master of Puppets is a flawless masterpiece, I'm not interested in, in saying that you're wrong about it it's just an an well i'm
0: never wrong bruno my (laughs) opinion
1: is fact so i'm glad we agree with that (laughs) absolutely yes i i I had a momentary brain fart there i can't imagine what i was thinking but also um when to come back to your point about oh well i don't feel compelled to then listen to if i if i get to the end of master profits i'm not going to flip it back to track one and start all over again um to defend the album, I would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, because if you're talking about art, and I, think, and I think with puppets we can say that we are talking about art, then the fact that it is this monumental piece of work that's had this impact on you and is not easily digestible, if, if you ate a fantastic, really good quality gourmet meal, you're not going to get get to the dessert course and then say well i'm going to eat the whole thing again whereas right. if you ate a burger you would get to the end of it and you would say well i'll have another one of those so it so i i completely appreciate what you're saying so if you know if 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 ride the lightning is the burger in this slightly torturous analogy then <laughs> then yeah you, you listen to ride the lightning and you say well i'll have another bite of that Whereas with Master of Puppets, it's like, well, no, I've had this extraordinary meal and this has enriched my day. And in, and in fact, it's enriched my life. And uh, and so I'm satisfied with this and I'll do it again next week or next month or even next yeah. year. So again, this is not to denigrate Master of Puppets and this is not to say that anyone who, who appreciates that album is wrong. It's, it's not to my taste because as a huge generalisation – I like stuff that is faster, poppier, and more immediate. Um, you know, I'm I'm like some kid who's who's wired on on their, you know cocaine E numbers, Coca- <laughs> Coca-Cola and E numbers. I hasten to add, uh, and and I want that kind of instant gratification of a, of a good of a good chorus. Yeah, um, that's a huge generalisation because there is there is stuff that is that is more sure. slow burning that I enjoy, um, and so that would be one of the reasons why. I if, if I if I were to pick an an album from that year and say what, what would be my pick of that year probably the album I would go for would be darkness descends by Dark Angel uh, because I think that's a an extraordinarily heavy record all the songs on it are really good the production is pretty good by thrash metal standards and it it's it's better than raining blood in my opinion on raining blood as, as huge of a slayer fan as i am i would not deny that the 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 only songs off that that you that actually stick in your head after you've listened to it are angel of death and raining blood you know there's a reason why though if if you look at the spotify listening figures for um for raining blood um sorry for rain yeah for rain in blood the album those two songs are massively above all the others and that's because the eight songs in the middle of of those two all basically sound the same it's like listening to the same song for half an hour and so rain in blood works as a really really good complete sensory experience where it just beats you over the head for for 28 minutes and in that sense i think the only album that's um comparable to it in my experience there was a a a band called uh sugar which bob mold formed after he left huska and they put out an album called beaster which uh if you're a fan of it's not a thrash album but if you are a fan of thrash metal i i can really really recommend it because in like raining blood it just grabs you by the scruff of the neck and just shakes you vigorously for for 25 minutes, yeah, and then pushes you to the floor, and you're exhausted and sweaty, and you love it. Can you necessarily sing the choruses in the way that you can with the Metallica stuff? No, you can't, because they were aiming for different experiences. Right. So, um, why am I talking about Husker and Sugar on a Metallica? <laughs> why again, not? I can only, why I can only not, apologize. Bruno?
0: Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, going back to Rain and Blood for a moment. You know, I'm gonna kind of, uh, I'm gonna kind of go against what I said about *Ride the Lightning* master puppets, where I I love the immediacy of *Rain and Blood*. I love the short conciseness of like that whole album is a brutal blur, and then it ends, and I appreciate that about this re- about that record. I'm not sure. Um, I would rank that among my favorite Slayer album. I think it because of the power of Angel of Death, the power of the song "Rain and Blood," and just the impact that album had in such a seminal year, it's held up on uh you know this pedestal of uh thrash metal greatness, and rightfully so. I'm not describing that record. it deserves all the praise it gets. Um, but I think for me personally, it it would not rank among my favorite Slayer album, but I do really love and appreciate the immediacy of it. Even if, like you said, the kind of the tracks in between are not necessarily the most memorable, but one might argue that is, uh, the case for, you know, several Slayer records where there's kind of, because there is that similarity in style.
1: There is, and as we said at the top of the show, they they never really diverged from a winning formula. Um, and you can say the same about ACDC, although. And as much as I appreciate ac I think they've made a lot more blah albums than Slayer ever did. I think I think Slayer, particularly in the latter half of their career, where they were leaving years between albums, um, so the, the when they put out um god hates us all in 2001 which i think is a strong contender for their finest album and then they leave it another five years until they put out christ illusion and um and you think oh well there's been a five-year gap so they're going to have done something different and in fact they don't (laughs) (laughs) they come out with christ illusion and they've got dave lombardo back and it and it sounds like everything else they've ever done but with much better drumming um (laughs) So um yeah I, I i think i think you're right um i i i also i also would, ag- would agree with you um that rain in blood when you when you when you stack it up next to other slayer albums there are other slayer albums that are better um i think i think there's a case for saying that show no mercy is better definitely think there's a case for saying that god hates us all and christ illusion are better and there's lots of people who would who would point to um south and seasons as well as being better albums but it's 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 about um and again this comes back to the the slightly tortured analogy that i was bringing in earlier um where uh you look at those early albums and it's really only music critics that are writing about them those first two slayer albums there's a there's like a hard core of like 12 people in the world who who are like listening to them at the time and going this is the future of metal but right. no one, no one else is listening to it, um, or if they are listening to it, they're just laughing. They're like, "Well, this is Judas Priest at 78 revs per minute, and this is ridiculous." And they're singing about Satan, and no one needs this. Um, but they build up their reputation over those three years, and then when Rainy Blood comes out, it's the right album at the right time. But um, again, looking at the chronology of what happened in in '86. Raining Blood actually came out in October, and um, it came out, I believe, on the same day that Slippery When Wet went to number one in America. So it's not like everything changed overnight, because actually the biggest band in the world at that point was Bon Jovi. And even right. when Thrash kind of hit the mainstream in 87, who was the biggest band in the world? Bon Jovi. And so in 87, you've got Metallica opening for Bon Jovi, much to to Hetfield's displeasure at the Monsters of Rock Festival in in Britain.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing to me about Slayer is that they are, well, to back up a little bit to a point that you hinted at earlier and made again uh, very well, is that none of these albums were, I don't think, uh, extremely popular or incredibly influential when they were released like you said it took time for them to kind of sink into the public and for i think it was not till years later where people kind of could trace back at the thrash metal movement to the records that were really important to a lot of bands that came after um perhaps because you know they were cited as an influence or the sound of this album was copied by you know a hundred other bands or what what whatever the case is, it takes years for all these albums to, to kind of become known as quote classics or masterpieces. Nobody's listening to Rain and Blood or I think Peace sells but who's buying in nineteen eighty six saying this is like going to change everything overnight.
1: I think you're right, and uh, also coming back to 2112, which was um, 2112 actually, by Rush's negligible commercial standards at the time, 2112 actually was pretty successful. But then it's an album that uh, this is this, this kind of like music biz trope where people will find. You know, my, In my older brother's collection, there was this album or this album, and I guess the classic one would be Dark Side of the Moon or something like that. And then 2112, it's an album which which um, successive generations discover and that then has a huge impact on them. And when I was um, thinking about this episode and knowing that we were going to be focusing on 1986, I um, found uh, a quite illuminating billboard article on an anniversary of master of puppets where they interviewed various um musicians to to uh, establish the the impact that master had on them um and there's a, a couple of quotes which if you'll permit me i'll read out and of course, one of them yeah, from so. uh jacob bannon of converge now i don't i don't know how many people are familiar with Converge they did the classic album John Doe uh, sorry Jane Doe oh my god I can't believe I've guys <laughs> <down. laughs> if you're going to send me hate mail send me hate mail I got the title of that album wrong um, but um, the, that's a, an absolute stone cold classic it, it, it invented a genre and it defined a genre and it's never been bettered in my opinion um, but if you listen to Uh, anything that Converge did. You can't really trace it back to Metallica. It doesn't sound like Metallica. It doesn't sound like something that's been influenced by Metallica. Nonetheless, Jacob Bannon of Converge said, of Master of Puppets, it cemented their place in my heart as visionaries. They may not have invented the heavy metal wheel, but they sharpened it into a near perfect instrument. So I think that's quite illuminating that someone who's really coming out of that hardcore scene would regard puppets like that and then you've got a much more obvious influence which is matt heafy of trivium and i'm i'm not here to 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 diss trivium they are a great band but there's there's very few bands who are more transparently metallica inspired than trivium and uh matt heafy said master of puppets not only summarises all the ranges of sound Metallica excels at, from slow and melodic to fast and brutal, it also encapsulates everything that had been done in the past, present, and hinting at what was to come in the future. Master of Puppets showed me what can be done with metal. And so in the same way as 2112, they, um, they presented a world of possibilities to their listeners, Many of whom were probably like the guys I've just quoted, like myself. Um, when you're a teenager, if you listen to an ACDC album, for example, it's not going to open your horizons. You're not going to, you might love an ACDC album, and God knows I, along with millions of other people, love ACDC albums, but it's not going to make you think about music in a different way because that's not their gig. Their gig right. is reminding you of. Well, actually, it all stems from Chuck Berry. But actually, if you listen to 2112 or Master of Puppets or any of those really ambitious albums, you'd struggle to hear Chuck Berry in it because actually they're trying to push everything on further. And that is the stuff which makes people form bands. That's the stuff which, in the case of people like yourself, makes you want to pick up a guitar to figure out how the hell did they even do this? You know, right. no, no, Angus Young is a fantastic player, brilliant player, one of the very best players that Hard Rock has ever produced. But I don't know that you're going to listen to too much ACDC and, and spend time wondering, how did they do that? You're not. <laughs> right. Whereas you are going to listen to something like Sanitarium, which is the one of you know of, of the slow ponderous, you know, proggy songs on on Master of Puppets. Um, Sanitarium is the one that I could bear to listen to. And you would listen to that, particularly if you were an impressionable teenager, as I was at the time, and you would think, wow, I've not heard that before, and I've particularly not heard that before in this genre. Um, and so I think that really is where Metallica were really massively thinking out. And I don't know how much of that was contrived i don't know i don't know that they were sitting in a room saying we must really push the boundaries i i would like to romantically think that they weren't doing that and that it was as kind of natural alchemy because they were a brilliant band so lars might not have been uh, a technically accomplished drummer but he was perfect for metallica he is perfect for metallica and, and yeah. I, I get very bored with people saying well he's no good as a drummer because it's like well y- y- in which case you form a band that millions of people around the world. you know I'll, <laughs> I'll, sit on right. my, I'll sit on my bed and i will mime drum bits from metallica records right and i'm yeah. not, not going to do it uh, do that with anyone else um so, and, and in Hammett, you've got maybe not the world's most gifted guitarist but a very good guitarist in Hetfield, you've got an absolutely master of his craft. You know, there's no one better at rhythm, um, with the possible exception of Malcolm Young. And then you've got Cliff Burton, who was also very innovative as well. So I kind of, I like to think of it as a kind of lightning in a bottle thing, where you've got these four personalities, and they were exactly the right people. And at that time, these four personalities come together, um, and they conjure magic. Um, and you, there's, there's other bands who are, who are comparable Pink Floyd would be a good example with the exception of David Gilmour, there's no one in Pink Floyd who's a particularly talented musician you know Rick Wright was an okay keyboardist Nick Mason was a very very pedestrian drummer and Roger Waters by his own admission only played bass because there was no other instrument available for him to play in the band <laughs> um, but suddenly you get these you know, mediocre musicians who can conjure a masterpiece piece like Dark Side of the Moon. Um, and so the, the same thing happens with Metallica. And um, I read in a, an old Revolver interview, I think it was, where Kirk and Lars were talking about the music that they were listening to at the time. And the two names which really stuck out to me, one was Simon and Garfunkel, um, and Paul Simon is to me one of the greatest, well, to me and millions of other people, one of the greatest songwriters in the history of pop music. And Kate Bush as well. Now, I would struggle, I, th- I, think, I think I'd have to hand it over to your friend Richard S.E. on this point to, to see if he can identify any points in Master of Puppets that betray the influence of Kate Bush and Simon and Garfunkel. But the fact that they were listening to those artists at the time shows that they were really willing to think outside the heavy metal box so dave Mustaine and dave ellison ellison for example who who can who make a great album with peace cells am i is it a great album half half of peace cells is great and the rest is pretty good fella um were they listening to kate bush and simon garfunkel in their spare spare time probably not you know they were listening to venom (laughs) or they were doing heroin they were not right pushing the boundaries of what thrash metal band should be listening to at that time but metallica were and um, a, a, and they come up with this album that as i say really broadens your horizons and inspires you
0: so many points there all excellent that i want to kind of go back and unpack so first to go back to the quotes when you we're talking about Converger, remind me a lot of uh, dillinger escape plan who on the surface is not a band that you know when you listen to uh, a Dillinger Escape Plan album, you're not going to be like, oh, they were definitely influenced by Metallica. But Metallica was a gigantic influence on them to the point where on one of the records, they have a song called 82588, named after the release date of Injustice for All, because Greg Pucciato, the vocalist, said it's his favorite album of all time, like the album that got him into metal. Um, so it, and then to also to uh, the Trivium quote of Matt Hafey. I always say, you know, the, if I had to play somebody who was just born into this world or, you know, for some godforsaken reason, never heard of Metallica ever in their life, if you play them the song Master of Puppets, that song perfectly captures everything I think they do great as a band, where you have the fast heavy parts, the groove heavy parts, the melody, the lyrics. The singable chorus, the song structure, the guitar souls, the beautiful interlude in the middle that kind of like is unexpected if you've not heard it before, you're not familiar with Metallica. It's just, I think, a masterclass with what Metallica is at their best and what metal can be, um, especially up to that point. Um, now, as terms of now to go to your other point you know i always kind of joke that slayer is the acdc of metal uh, because it's that repetition in uh sound in albums but you know like you were saying uh, the the big difference is that there is an incredible simplicity with what acdc does and i'm not discrediting them i'm not discrediting their musicianship their songwriting obviously They've written some phenomenal songs, some phenomenal albums. Um, hence why they're still relevant and they're still popular, and why Back in Black is one of the best selling albums of all time. Uh, but when you listen to Slayer, there's not that same uh, familiarity for people who are not listening to the Rash because it's not rooted in that same, uh, I feel like, you know, Chuck Berry. Bluesy rock and roll that was established decades before. It's more fueled by, um, well, the obvious joke answer would be say it's more fueled by Satan, right? Because it's Slayer, but <laughs> more fueled by punk rock, uh, Venom, Motorhead, Judas Priest, and all those uh Sabbath and all those like seminal metal bands that came before. Um, and you know, I think there is a reason why Metallica is that band who's willing to branch out and try new things that other metal bands would not dare to try or maybe just would not have the opportunity to try because they do have perhaps a more diverse listening palette from the start. Um, you know, I think if you were to ask Dave Mustaine now as an older man in his 50s what music he listens to, he probably would list a lot of diverse things but when he's an angry heroin fueled metalhead i'm not sure uh he was you know like you said digesting you know simon and garfunkel i think it was everything i just listed for slayer you know and, and then some um but i think that is to your point sort of what fueled and separated metallica and made them kind of be as ambitious as they were because they were not just saying well i want to do what black sabbath did or i want to do what judas priest did or i want to do motor what motorhead did they wanted to do all those things but they're also looking elsewhere be like all right where can i pull this from or that from and and looking at things in a new way where i feel like the other bands probably were not at least at that time uh, uh,
1: yes absolutely and and the other interesting thing is how gigantically out of step they were with all prevailing musical trends at the time so if you look at what was happening with hard rock and metal around that time so in 84 and 85 the big bands are van halen rat and motley Crue, and riding on the back of that kind of glamish revival even kiss get a platinum album at that point i think they they got their only platinum album in 84. Um, so you're really talking about kind of spandex-clad, scarf-waving, um, hair metal and glam metal. A lot of, and I'm not here to diss that because that's actually the stuff that I grew up on, and I love that stuff, and, um, and and it's enduringly popular today, as shown by that endlessly postponed stadium tour that, that motley, <laughs> motley is supposed to will allegedly do if vince neal can drag himself oh, out of the buffet God. tray poor um,
0: vince neal
1: so yeah <laughs> yeah it, it, as a motley crew fan that breaks my heart but um but if you consider that's what was happening at the time um and then coming up into 86 all of that stuff is still popular as we mentioned at the top of the show Ozzy Osbourne is the biggest star of that year and Ozzy and again I'm not here to disrespect Ozzy but Ozzy is not exactly pushing the envelope in terms of what you can achieve in terms of music no. um, m- maybe J.P. Lee was trying but, but Ozzy's, Ozzy's finger was on the button there and then you've got um, some of the, the older established acts are kind of they're kind of staggering along so Black Sabbath are more or less intact Deep Purple are hanging in there. Aerosmith are tottering along. The Scorpions are being the Scorpions as they have been since the dawn of time. And you've got Ronnie James Dio and ACDC as well. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got this glam stuff, which is selling millions of albums, and then you've got this kind of more traditional metal, which is kind of trundling along. So what Metallica were doing... I suppose in a way you could say this about the whole thrash metal movement and you could say that is why thrash metal was so um, divisive at the time. Uh, And it really was divisive at the time because a lot of people hated it in the same way as they hated punk rock. They were just, this is noise. Either this is noise or this is really juvenile and this is stupid. And then actually these things then many years later Kind of percolate through to your consciousness so when you listen to um uh, uh any of the albums that came out in 86 they they when you listen to them now they don't seem as revolutionary or as shocking as they did at the time um Particularly with, with with you know the, the bigger albums like Puppets or Rain in Blood, but there's there's actually there's actually stuff that um, from that era that does still sound sh- like the the first couple of Bathory albums, for example, or Seven Churches by Possessed, which I would personally rate as one of the top ten greatest metal albums of all time. That that really does still sound shocking to me now because it's so utterly alien from everything yeah. else that was coming out at the time, but. Um, to try and drag this long rambling point back to the yeah. point that i was trying to make master of puppets is it doesn't sound like anything else um you can't put it on and think oh yes i know exactly what they were listening to i mean you you could you could basically you could you could you could maybe say rush in terms of its uh, ambition and its scope and like with a, a lot of early Ma- uh, uh, metallica you could trace it back to iron maiden um, right. and you know, the, the, the twin guitar stuff that, that UFO or Thin Lizzy did. But Master of Puppets doesn't sound like Iron Maiden. Um, it doesn't sound like UFO. It doesn't sound like Thin Lizzy. It doesn't sound like Rush. It sounds like Metallica. So that is um, a, a huge tribute and a testament to how absolutely great they were. You and I would argue that they still are. But a lot of people would say, well, no, Master of Puppets was, you know, that was it. That was, they're right, never going to yeah. get better than that. And because you could say, you could put on that album and you could say, for for any of its, what, what I would regard as flaws, it's definitive Metallica because it doesn't sound like anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you compare it to, say, Uh, Somewhere in Time, which was the Metallica, uh, the Maiden album that came out in the same year. Now, Somewhere in Time is an inexplicably overrated album. I I do not get why anyone thinks that's a a half-decent album. It isn't. It's rubbish. (laughs) It's Iron Maiden by numbers. And I think the only explanation for its uh, popularity, particularly in America, is that that's the album that really, really broke Maiden big in the states and so maybe it was for a generation it was their first maiden album and so they had yeah. a special place in their hearts um but it's rubbish and uh, <laughs> and so if you compare what metallica were doing with master of puppets which was very ambitious very sophisticated how can we really pack as many ideas in compared to the band who were their most obvious influence iron maiden where it was like well how can we string out one barely formed idea into an eight minute song. Um, You you know, uh, 86, uh, Iron Maiden, just before I I get even more hate mail, Iron Maiden, (laughs) then went on subsequently to do really, really great albums. Uh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, and then stuff that they've done in the past 20 years, fantastic, brilliant. But at that point in their career, they're desperately running short of inspiration. And, um, Bruce Dickinson at the time would tell you that an album like Seventh Son for a Seventh Son, which I love, was uh, signposting a way for metal in the 21st century.
0: Mm. It wasn't.
1: It absolutely wasn't. Um, Mm. The album that was signposting a direction for metal in the 21st century was Master of Puppets. So you could say that 86 was the year that the baton got passed from Maiden, who yeah. really had led the charge and done magnificent, influential stuff in the first half of the decade, then Metallica take over. Um, they're, not, they're not the only ones, um, right. because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Slippery When Wet came out the same year, and Slippery When Wet had a gigantic influence, um, uh, particularly commercially, because it showed that um, Hard Rock, which is what Bon Jovi were regarded as at the time, could be a viable commercial thing that you could play on MTV and you could play on the radio. So And that had a much more immediate impact. And you'd have to draw down in the figures to establish which was the more influential album of 86. Was it Master of Puppets or was it Slippery Where? And, where? and I think probably it would come up more or less even that, that both of them shaped the course of hard rock for the next few decades.
0: Yeah, well, I think you need to look at the difference between the 80s and the 90s culturally. Whereas the 80s was like a lot more fun and vibrant as a decade um, in a lot of ways, as, at least in terms of you know, pop culture, with, um, you know, the major pop acts of the day, the way a lot of TV shows and movies were presented. And then in the 90s, you have, uh, you know, a uh, the glam metal hair metal mostly dies and everybody says because of nirvana Never mind the Pearl Jam the the arrival of grunge um, and while I think there is a lot of truth to that I think the the that generation who are teenagers in the early 1990s were just ready for a change and they were ready for something maybe Dare I say, use that word "serious" again? It's a little bit more serious, a little bit more. Um, they were not, uh, you know, into kind of the cheese and the party and the fun that the a lot of the decade represented before. So I think that made it the perfect time for these thrash bands to take that next step into the mainstream of course Metallica had the Black Album you have Megadeth with Countdown to Extinction you have you know to a lesser extent Anthrax with Sound of White Noise you have um, even Slayer kind of dipping their toes in with Season of the Abyss and you know the arrival of Headbangers Ball in the late 80s kind of helping facilitate all that getting their videos played on MTV and kind of but I think it really you know if grunge killed glam metal it was already on its way out because you can trace it back to the, the, the gradual increase in popularity of thrash metal and that more underground metal uh, of the 1980s kind of by 89, 90, taking the next steps and the next steps and the next steps. And then it takes the Black Elm, I think, to kind of completely smash down the door for everybody else
1: yeah, I think um I think gla- the glam metal thing was a bubble that simply had to burst at, at some point. and um, i think I think I think the bubble bursting moment for glam or for hair metal would be cherry pie. And I would have yeah. to I'd have to google this to be absolutely sure, but I have a feeling that when I was writing about cherry pie for my book, because, yeah, I'll put my hands up. I did put Warrant Cherry Pie in my book, 666 songs <laughs> to make the mango head until we die. Because it is a great song. Um, I have a feeling that that came out the, the same week or the same month as Smells Like Teen Spirit. And so that really was... In the, in, pe- people always talk about um Mind Knocking uh, Dangerous by Michael Jackson off the top of the US chart. Which is an achievement. I've I've a, I've a vague feeling that Dangerous may have <laughs> returned to the number one spot in the in the subsequent weeks. Yeah. But that was a, a kind of epochal moment. But it, t- when, if you're talking about hard rock and metal, then that really is that's that's the point where uh, where, where glam. It, you you can't get a record that is more stupid than Cherry Pie. That's <laughs> it's it's the stupidest record. Yeah. In the history of, of the genre that we love. Which doesn't mean that it's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that after that... Um, I mean... There's, no, there's nowhere else to go after that.
0: I mean... You have heard Limp Biscuit though. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> As I always um, like to say... New Metal... And I know this is going to get me hate mail... At Metallica's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram... New metal was the hair metal of the late 90s, early 2000s. And I say that because you have like those big bands that are still popular today, right? Whether, you know, you had, uh, uh, I think Bon Jovi kind of transcended hair metal, but they definitely, you know, were part of it for a, a moment. But you had, you have bands like that. You have bands like Corn, right? That kind of stand the test of time. But then you have, you know, the, the warrants and the limp biscuits and the the uh, P.O.D.s and the kind of all those smaller bands that kind of got lost in the shuffle as time moved on, and uh, I don't, I just always thought of that comparison just new metal was heavier and angrier
1: <laughs> okay i mean this is with the point where i think obviously you're talking complete nonsense um, and um, I, I think i think there was lots of new metal that was absolutely fantastic and uh, i think if you were to uh, look at the deftones for example i think there's a strong way well, saying that the deftones would be the greatest band of the past
0: 25 years i i i i'm over generalizing obviously i know bands like the deftones aren't i i'm personally not a fan of the deftones i think they're incredibly talented i think they're incredibly influential they're not my cup of tea but i completely acknowledge them i think but but i'm not even but i i know they like were part of it but i think they've like transcended the new metal scene i think you know System of Down was lumped into that. They've transcended the new metal scene. I'm a big System of Down fan. I'm not. I'm over obviously, but you know, when you look at like the uh, again, I'll, I'll use the Limp Bizkit example. When you look at bands like that that were a little bit more uh, fun, party oriented, cartoonish. Not discrediting them, not saying they were could not write a song or a riff or were not talented musicians, but it just that that parallel kind of always struck with me as like it was kind of. The late nineties, early two thousands version of like, hey, we're just gonna have a good time with some hard and heavy rock and roll type music, you know?
1: Yeah, I, Limp Limp Biscuit. I mean, that's always going to be a divisive band. One of the things that I appreciated about Limp Biscuit um, is kind of um, what I, as a as a kid, I appreciated about Kiss, um, and obviously to this day, people will say that Kiss is just empty headed music for idiots um and uh and, and i am one of those proud idiots you know kiss is a band whose logo they're the only band whose logo i would be prepared to tattoo on my body because they're the only band where i could say <laughs> i will go to my grave loving kiss and there are, there's probably a generation of kids like actual kids who came up listening to limp biscuit and that would be they the entry point um for, their, for, for them getting into harder music and also yeah. if you saw Mint Biscuit around that time um, as despicable and obnoxious as Fred Durst's public image was if you saw him on stage at that time he was expounding a, a lot of the same values that um, Kiss were which is he's telling his young fans believe in yourself and you can accomplish this and I think that's an incredibly valuable message for anyone to communicate to children um, the, the idea that if you believe in yourself and you work at something and you ignore the people, or all the naysayers, then you will achieve it. Um, am I am I then going to defend Limp Biscuit's actual output? <laughs> I, I would I would struggle with that because there's nothing ambitious yeah. about what they were doing. And again, yeah. if you come back to you know the words that I've overused in this show are. Ambition and sophistication <laughs> which is what, which is what Metallica had and which is what is, is what they still have to this day. Um, mm. Just a, a couple of days ago I was re-watching some of s and 2 and it's brilliant and mm-hmm. in, in, as we know they were they were very far from being the first band to work with an orchestra they won't be the last. but I think there's a strong case for saying that they did it best. Um, it, it, it's absolutely glorious, and would d- disregarding the obvious commercial incentive, how interested would world class orchestras be with working with a band who didn't whose whose material was not as rich as Metallica's? Yeah. And again, because um, I've with, heard.
0: I've heard Kiss with an Orchestra. Yeah. And it's it, It's nothing,
1: right. it, n- it, it's, nothing I mean, to it, <laughs> it, it doesn't um, Yeah, it, I mean that Kiss Symphony it, it is kind of does kind not of
0: sound it does not sound bad, but it to me I I mean I, I will be the first to admit I have not listened to the full album, so I, I'm not really the best judge, but from what I have heard of it, like it does not sonically enhance those songs to me um it not that saying it does not sound bad uh whereas i feel like there are multiple metallica songs because their style of songwriting kind of better lends itself to that where some of the songs not all the songs but some of the songs are kind of sonically enhanced by having the orchestra play with them
1: they absolutely are, and I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about a song like "Master of Puppets" itself, where it's got all these different layers, layers and nuances in it. Yeah. And so that is something that an orchestral arrangement can really play with. And I, the the, the S and M versions of of um, "Master of Puppets" itself, they're magnificent, and they, they might even be my go to versions of those song of of that, particularly of that song. Um, yeah. because, because it takes a complex song and brings out all these other elements to it, and, and all the all the nuances in it. Um, and and there, there's there's never a nuance in a kiss song. As much as I love them, there's there's right. nothing. You know, you, you've established in the first 15 seconds of a kiss song what the next three minutes are going to sound like. Whereas in the first 15 seconds of a Metallica song. Whether it's master or whether it's battery or sanitarium, um, give you no clue of what's going to happen next. And I think that goes back to, um, y- you know, your man from Trivium's point is that it uh, it shows shows you what metal can do, right. and it and it says it doesn't have to be this very simplistic palette. Um, you can do all these other things as well, and. So then that would be you know uh, other people who are not more, more knowledgeable about thrash than I am could then debate sit here and debate with you for an hour and a half is master of puppets even a thrash album um, and I would say yes it is but on a completely different level to everything else that was happening right. at the time and again coming back to peace cells for example I, I, I would out of out of these album out of those two albums I would probably put on peace sales because it's more immediate, um, and the filler tracks don't go on for hours and hours and hours like Orion and the thing that should not be done. Um, but but nonetheless, as we were saying earlier, you can still hear the the you can you can hear very evidently what Mustaine and Ellefson were listening to at that time, whereas you can't with Metallica, which is why I think I rather pretentiously used the word alchemy earlier and that's what they were doing. They were alchemizing all these influences into something that was completely different to this day. I don't think there's an album that sounds like master of puppets. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that again is a tribute to it. Um, there's, there's many people who've tried to copy it and I don't think anyone's pulled it off.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And what you were saying too, leads me to kind of, uh, two points that, um, I want to kind of, I, I want to make and kind of finish on uh, as we start to wrap up here. So to go back to um, before we wrap up the year of 1986, you mentioned kind of, we, we were talking about how, uh, you know, acid and the, the orchestra kind of sonically enhancing some of those songs for us. And for me, a, a song that the orchestra really enhances is the call of Cthulhu. Now I know that, your uh disdain for orion so I, I i need to know uh i'm i'm interested to know sort of where do the metallic instrumentals rank for you because I'll, I'll say for me personally if we have i'm kind of taking out anesthesia pulling teeth because that's not like a full band instrumental it's a bass solo i know you know technically it's an instrumental but i'm kind of taking that out so when we look at the Call of Cthulhu, Orion, To Live Is To Die, and then Suicide and Redemption. The Call of Cthulhu album version, I like. I do not love. If See, for me, Ride the Lightning and This Is Gonna Get Me Hate Mail could end before that song. Now, with that said, I think the S&M versions on both 1 and 2, I think the orchestra adds so much to that. That it might elevate that instrumental to me above the others. I think Orion. I have the opposite opinion of Orion. I think Orion is a masterpiece. When um, I had a, the pleasure of seeing them perform it live, it was. I, I, I'm not sure if it's just my fondness of Cliff Burden and and he was such a, an influence for me wanting to pick up the bass and learn how to play the bass. Perhaps that's why I hold it in such high regard. I mean, I remember being in middle school or high school or whatever age, like learning dun 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 dun, dun, dun on my bass and listening to that part over and over and over again. Uh, but I, th- I think there's just a uh, – I think when it goes into that middle part with that bass section, the solo, it's so uh, almost atmospheric in a way that other Metallica songs are not – really atmospheric um it 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 just hits me in a different way than some of their other material and i think it's just a really beautifully uh orchestrated piece of music to live is to die i love i think it's the under the most underrated of all the 80s instrumentals um i think it's a pretty brilliant instrumental track uh, and a nice tribute to Cliff Burden featuring his poetry. When we get to Suicide and Redemption, you mentioned Leopard Messiah to you being Metallica by numbers. To me, Suicide and Redemption is... I, I don't dislike the song. I think there's some killer riffs in it. I think there is some killer moments in it. But to me, that's more Metallica by numbers than, a, than uh, a, a lot of the other tracks, especially a song like "Leper Messiah. Um, if Leopard Messiah is metallic by numbers, then it is... The first example of that being like Metallica by numbers, whereas Suicide and Redemption is all these years later. To me, that seems like more, it, it seems, I think there's some cool parts in it. I don't dislike the song, but it seems a little bit more forced and less natural than the instrumentals that came before. So with, with all that said, I'm interested to hear what you have to say and sort of where you would kind of rank those instrumentals for yourself.
1: Well, I'm going to start off by saying that I entirely agree with you about Cotillo. I think the points you've made are are, are absolutely a, a thousand percent right, and I think those S and M versions are are magnificent, and they elevate a pretty good track into a magnificent piece of work. Um, and I, I would actually say that you know if. if my 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 dad, for example, was a huge classical music fan. He also loved hard rock, and and the Metallica album in his collection was was S and M, uh, and and I think I think Cthulhu that that version of you know the the opening uh, Ecstasy of Gold, and then Cthulhu yeah um, that, that that was what what sold it to him really. Um, so I agree I agree with you about that. I think everything else that you've said is complete nonsense. Um, and
0: uh, and how, how you can bring
1: yourself to say that on an internationally syndicated show is, is completely beyond me. Um I think um I think Orion uh quite apart from the fact that I just think it's boring, is is really an, an exercise in uh what, I, what what I appreciate about the rest of of master of puppets is that it's kind of um, I'm going to tr- I'm going to try and find a word that isn't sophisticated because I feel that I've said that <laughs> seventeen thousand times over the past hour um, something that's really uh, kaleidoscopic uh, in spite of its origin so something like master of puppets the song or even disposable heroes because disposable heroes even though it's like this. You know, brutal thing that just smashes you over the head for how long is Disposable Heroes*? Eight, eight minutes, nine. I can't remember how Something long. Something
0: like is. eight minutes, yeah.
1: Okay, and you could say, well, there's not a lot of light and shade in there, but it's right. it's like uh, it's like in *My Time of Dying* by Led Zeppelin, where it, it's it's actually just the sheer force of that brutality for that length of time becomes a, a, an almost sort of transcendent experience, whereas *Orion* is hey, look at us, we're musicians. And um, I think you and I are also coming at it from slightly different perspectives as well because you are a musician and I'm not. I'm just like some... Nerdy kid who never grew up and thinks that you know he's a, <laughs> thinks that his opinion matters, but I don't actually. Well, that kind instrument.
0: of sums me up too. I just <laughs> happen to play an instrument, hence I have a podcast because my opinion matters. So,
1: <laughs> well, you're underselling yourself because you, you're you're extremely knowledgeable and you're much more knowledgeable about than me about these things. But um, so, um, I'm going to tread on very very dangerous ground here.
0: Cliff, <laughs> Please do, Cliff
1: Burton. And I mean absolutely no disrespect to Cliff at all, because clearly, um, quite apart from his merits as a human being, and by all accounts, he was a thoroughly lovely human being, was obviously part of the quartet that created this magical stuff that you, that entranced you and I, and hence why you and I have just devoted an hour talking to, about the work that he was 25% of. Cliff Burton, as a musician, had no impact on me whatsoever. When I listened to Metallica at the time, when I've listened to Metallica in the intervening decades, and when I listen to it now, I'm not listening to the bass. Um, and um, when I seek out Metallica footage from years go by, I will always gravitate towards the Newstead stuff and not the Burton stuff. Um, so whereas as a kid I might have played air drum, air drums along to um Lars's stuff or tried to mimic what James and Kirk were doing, I was I was never listening to what Cliff Cliff was doing. And it doesn't mean that I've got no appreciate appreciation of bass players because if I listen to a Chili Peppers record, for example, I am listening to what Flea is doing. If I listen to a Sabbath album, I am listening to what Geezer Butler is doing. And and Cliff Burton, and this is just a personal take. It's not supposed to be a hot take. I'm not trying to piss on anyone else's likes or memories. Cliff Burton, to me, as a musician, he's nowhere near my top bass player. So um, that would be another big black mark against Orion for me. And Suicide and Redemption, to me, is... Um, my favourite because it's it's like a it's like listening to a firework display on on record, and I love the fact that it kind of shoots off in all these different and overtly flashy directions. Um, and so, to me, "Suicide and Redemption," despite its um, you know very weighty title, is a really fun instrumental, and the other three are not fun in my, and I, and by and large, and again, this is a huge generalization. I want to have fun when I'm listening to music and, um, and so those early 80s are not fun you know those were Metallica <laughs> being desperately serious you know that was yeah. the band that was frowning in all their promo photographs and the bands that you know that was the band that wanted to kill all the glam bands and it's like we're going to do this by showing you how heavy and serious we are mm-hmm. um, and that's not the vibe that I get from Suicide and Redemption despite it's title
0: interesting and again everybody direct your hate mail too now I'm just kidding <laughs> Um, so let's take a step back now to 1986. Let's wrap this up. I, and the, the thing is there's so many thrash metal and metal albums of importance and of good quality that were out in 86 that we are not touching upon. And it's not to disregard those albums. It's because you could dedicate entire podcast series to the year 1986 in metal. So we're kind of just narrowing it in on the big four because of obviously this is a Metallica podcast and also um, a couple of the other ones out there um, because you you do feature uh, a couple others in your book, which we will plug in 666 songs uh, to make you bang your head until you die, such as uh, your you mentioned Dark Angel. Darkness Descends as a really pivotal album, an important album for you as a music fan. And that's featured in your book as well. So I'm interested out of the, out of the, well, first and foremost, are there any, with all that said, are there any really important, uh, really high quality thrash metal albums from 1986 in your opinion that we should be ranking among the master puppets, the Reigns and blood, the peace cells, the darkness descends. That we have not mentioned. Let's at least give it a mention, or not if you if you have any.
1: I think I think the other one. I I, I I'm, I'm glad you name checked darkness descends because I think that really doesn't get enough credit. That that and seven churches by possessed. I think those are the absolute game changers as far as I'm concerned. Um, that really really. Um, take the stuff that um, that Venom and uh, Bathory and even Motorhead were doing and they changed it into something new and absolutely awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I think the album from 86 that, w- that I would most put into that category would be um, Pleasure to Kill by Creator, the
0: mm-hmm. German
1: band. Um, again, um, Pleasure to Kill, I think... Um, It is an an album that betrays its influences, but it's an album that really steps everything up to the next level. It it, it doesn't just sound like Judas Priest played faster. It's it's heavier, it's guttural. It it doesn't just punch you in the ears, it punches you in the stomach as well. One of the things that sets apart the the big fours out um output at the time um is the vocals so a lot of people were doing these hideous impressions of rob halford now that there's that kind of high-pitched stuff i personally can't bear it um mm-hmm. i like it i like it when halford does it but when anyone else does it it it's just um fingernails down the chalkboard for me and the worst offender would be eric adams of man war which is why the only man of war song in my book is an instrumental and again this is not to disrespect people who like that stuff it's not i'm not here to tell you that you're wrong it's just it's not to my taste and a lot of those of those thrash bands um they took that priest template and they copied not just the guitars and the the drums but they also attempted to do these hideous shrieks as well whereas hetfield didn't tom araya did, as you correctly pointed out, he does it on Angel of Death within seconds of Rain and Blood opening, but mm-hmm. then he doesn't do it for the rest of the 20 28 minutes. And thank God. And neither does more um, Petrozza of, um, of Creator. And it's 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 heavy in the sense that, as I say, it punches you in the stomach and it leaves yeah. you kind of wheezing and, 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 and sweaty on the floor, just feeling like you've been run over by a steamroller. So... Um, that, that would be the album that I would urge people to check out if they haven't. It's um, it's Pleasure to Kill on the, the noise label. Um, it's a great record.
0: So t- to focus in on uh, just for the sake of uh, have, you know, uh, before we go off into 10 other bands that we could easily go into spend another three hours talking about, Let's focus on sort of the main four that you mentioned and that we've been talking about. Master Puppets, Rain and Blood, P-Cells, and uh, we'll throw Darkness Ascends in there as well. Where for you does... uh, Let's talk about the importance and impact of the record and then your personal preference. Uh, I think for me, the importance and impact of these four records are... Perhaps if you were to rank all these bands albums in terms of um, importance, all these albums are coming in at number one or two, in my opinion, in terms of importance and impact. When you, when you look at the history of thrash metal and the history of metal, but then there's the other part of where do you rank them in the catalog, right? Which is a harder question. It's a personal question for me. Master puppets is my favorite album. Um where for you does it sort of not not that you have to give me an exact number, but where for you does it sort of uh fall in the grand scheme of Metallica albums?
1: Um definitely not definitely not top three. Um and I uh when you when you kind had me on your show before and we would we touched on St. Anger and I said and I, I would always defend St. Anger. I defended it at the time and I would defend it now. And I think I said to you at the time, oh, I wouldn't, that's not, it's, yeah, you know, it's nowhere near my favourite Metallic album. But then after I appeared on your show, um, your friend Richard S.E., who's mm-hmm. well worth following, anyone, anyone who's interested in slightly kind of um, left field takes on this music that we love, I, I really urge you to, to follow what Richard writes. Absolutely. Um, he sent me a long piece that he'd written about some anger. And, um, and it's a, it's a very long piece, but it's exceptionally well written. And I read through that piece, and I thought, Do you know what? He's right. And if I was to reach for a Metallica al- if I if I was to reach for a Metallica album now, it's probably going to be the Black Album. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is my favorite Metallica album. But then I'm thinking, Well, what are the others that I'm actually going to listen to? Um, it's not going to be Master because as much as I love half of it. There's half of it that I just think is boring, um, so the the albums that I would rank top three would probably be Black Album, Lightning, and Some Anger, um, and and so where would I rank Master of Puppets? I, I'm not even sure that I would because I think I think there's lots of other you know earlier I was being kind of snotty about Kill 'Em All, I'd still rather listen to Kill 'Em All because <laughs> it, it's just it's just more fun. Um, yeah so um, you know, where would I rank Master I'd rank it in the top 10 but have Metallica put out <laughs> more than top 10, more than what, 10 is,
0: albums? What, is, what is funny about your top 3 if you trade out our number 1s and you put Master Puppets there we have the same top 3 because I would put Lightning and Black Album in my top 3 I think too which one takes number 2 and 3 is going to change depending on what day you talk to me um, in terms of Slayer like I said before, I don't think Rain and Blood is their finest album. Um, you know, I consider myself a casual Slayer fan because there's albums by them that I really like. There's songs by them that I really like, and then there's albums I'm like, eh, I get the gist of it. I've listened to a couple songs or I listened to it once, and I'm good. I it, I I think you know, even when I see them live, I think they put on a great live show, but it does it, it's not wowed me to a, a point where I'm like where I would tell anybody like, you have to see Slayer live. Like, I, I think you have an opinion of Slayer and that opinion is not going to change whether you see them live or not. You know, it, it it's just very uh, definitive. Uh, I think people's opinions of them are very definitive because it's such a strong uh, one style. Um, it's, it's either for you or it's not. Uh, I think for me, maybe Seasons of the Abyss would be number one. I think that has... Some great songs has a little bit more variety to it um, in terms of uh, when you look at other parts of the Slayer catalog. You mentioned God Hates Us All before. I think uh, that's a phenomenal album um, that is oftentimes overlooked in their catalog. And I, I mean, the song God Hates Us All, there's nothing more metal or Slayer than, you know, yelling, God Hates Us All. Right, It's just, a, as Tom Area said in an interview, uh, I think he was asked about the song title. He's like, I don't really think God hates anybody. It's just a cool song. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what he said. And I was like, it is a very uh, perfect uh, Slayer song in execution, in title, and everything. Um, so I'm interested to hear from you. You are a big Slayer fan. So where, where sort of would Rain and Blood rank for you?
1: It would kind of rank top five. Uh, but it, it, actually, shockingly, I agree with everything you've just said. And I would uh, t- top three Slayer albums. Again, this is going to change much as your Metallica albums. You know, it's it's never going to be this, quite the same from week to week. But probably top three, I'd probably say, God Hates Us All, Christ Delusion, because it has a special place in my part in my heart, and um, and Show No Mercy because I think. As I, as I mentioned before, I think Show No Mercy is far, far, in a way, the the, the finest of the Big Four's um, debut albums, and really set the template for a a, a brilliant um, career. But in the, in terms of in terms of '86 Thrash, um, the album that is head and shoulders above all of them, in my opinion, is Darkness Descends. In the book, um, I actually quoted. Uh, Phil Anselmo, and he said of Darkness Descends... um, Am I allowed to cast on your podcast? I can't remember.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, Okay, so Phil Anselmo says of Darkness Descends, Darkness Descends is one of the most relentless records in the history of fucking relentlessness. There's a power (laughs) within old-school thrash that I don't think is better exemplified than on this record. And And I really think that's the album which to me... If if someone said, why is 1986 the most important year for thrash metal, which I think we probably can agree 86 is, yeah. why, why that's the album that I would give them. Um, because it just, it, it sums up everything that was extraordinary about thrash metal. It sums up everything that was, um, this is why it's different. This is why it was a punch in the face. Um and this is this is why, at the time, everyone hated it. It's it's as abrasive and in your face as the Sex Pistols must have seemed a decade before. Um, and you, you could say the same about Rain in Blood, but re- but the songs in Rain in Blood are not as good as the ones on Darkness Descends. And as you quite correctly pointed out, the songs in Rain in Blood are not even as good as other songs in Slayer's catalog.
0: Yeah. Uh, so. I've, like for me, uh, Dark Angel is one of those bands where, like, I know moments from. I could not tell you about their whole catalog of music. I feel like they, and, and I feel like in, uh, perhaps other people can correct me, um, or will correct me. Um, I, I feel like they're a band with not the same level of consistency as uh, a Metallica, a Slayer, a Megadeth, where it's. You know they have these brilliant moments and then they have a lot more kind of forgettable moments or lower points in their, uh, in their musical output.
1: Well, I, I will completely come clean. I, I couldn't name you a Dark Angel song that is not on Darkness Descent. Um, yeah. But in the same way, I couldn't name you anything by Possess that isn't on Seven Churches. So right. there are these albums, they are these bands which, for all I know, had a uh, a, a fantastic career going on, and I'm not sufficiently motivated to check it out. And in part, I'm not motivated to check it out because I think, well, it can't possibly be better than Darkness Descends or um, yeah. or Seven Churches. And again, and you could, you know, dr- to drag this back to Metallica, you could say, well, in which case, that's actually one of the reasons why. We're talking about Metallica and why Metallica have a more enduring career and and a bit much bigger fan base is because um, the the palette of sounds that they presented to you on an album like Master of Puppets, you think, well, I wonder where they're going to go next. I wonder what they're mm. going to do next because it's not obvious. And right. um, and and you could say the same about Justice as well. Um, and in fact, you could say about pretty much everything that Metallica have done since then, which is that it was not obvious where they were going to go next. And sometimes they might really not go where you expected them to, such as on Lulu, for example. Um, yeah. So um, Dark Angel and Possessed are great bands because they made, they made these one al- one album that was absolutely fantastic. Um, there's, there's, one, there's actually just... Uh, sorry, I, I don't want to drag you way beyond your, your running time, but there's actually a band that... That we haven't mentioned at all, which is Testament. And mm. there's gonna be some Testament fans out there who are going, yeah. hang on, Testament did all of the things that you're saying are <laughs> admirable about these other bands. Testament did that as well. And Testament actually did have an enduring career. Yeah. And they actually um they're one of those bands who who had uh like you know, if Testament put an out al- an album out now, um it's going to do pretty well. It's probably going to get into the American top 20, for example. And some of their recent
0: albums have been very stellar. Like they, they're still putting out great music.
1: Absolutely. They are. And so I I think that's, uh, you know, when people talk about what, you know, if, if the big four was a big five, who would the fifth band be? And you're always going to get Exodus fans going, oh, it should be Exodus. Um, (laughs) And in fact, uh, here's my hot take for the evening. I'm going to give you a hot take. Bonded by Blood, oh my God, is there a more pedestrian, overrated album in the history of thrash metal than Bonded by Blood? It's like, as if the terrible, terrible cover was not going to tip you off as to what a bad album this is. Um, Then forcing yourself to listen to that boring, generic thrash metal, um, that's my hot take for the evening. I can't stand Bonded by Blood. And so would Exodus deserve to be the fifth of the big 5 absolutely not um Testament yeah. is the band Testament well, is the band and there'll be lots of people who would probably suggest that Testament are more worthy than Anthrax I wouldn't be one of them but but lots of people would say that
0: I agree with you I th- I think the problem with Exodus is in my opinion is that they've had a career of uh like really high turnover with band members they've gone in I feel like they've had a kind of musical identity crisis throughout their career where they're kind of like, all right, well, let's go in this direction because a lot of bands right now are going in this direction, kind of that type of thing, where I just feel like Testament has been very consistent throughout their career of putting out quality work with all the key members kind of staying on board and in place, um, which, you know, I, I, I know people are going to say, well, what about Megadeth? Yeah, but Mustaine is that person. They can, Mustaine can have a rotating staff of people because he's the primary songwriter. He's the visionary of that band. So it works. If you took Mustaine out of the picture, obviously it would not be Megadeth, right? It would be something completely different. It'd be a David Ellison side project, or I guess he's not in the band anymore. So it'd be just a group of random four people. But, um, so I, I think it's a, that's the difference, I think, between like Testament and Exodus and the argument of like who would be that fifth slot if you extend it to the big five. And I agree with you. I, I would put Testament there, hands down.
1: Absolutely.
0: And I Speaking of me, I'm interested to hear you know, just to wrap up our kind of rankings, Peace sells, but who's buying? You 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 described it as a patchy album, and I agree with you. Um, I know that there are people who would rank this as their favorite Megadeth album. Not going to argue with you. For me, that album is Rust and Peace. I think it's flawless from start to finish. I think it's a pretty much perfect thrash metal record. Um, and I and I guess my hot take would be if I had to rank a uh, Another Megadeth album. I'm gonna put an album like Cryptic Writings above P Cells, but who's buying too? I just think it's stronger songs from start to finish. Um, I'm not discrediting P Cells, but who's buying? Because like Wake Up Dead, classic. P Cells, classic. Uh, Good Morning Black Friday, love that piece. But like, I don't need the I Ain't Superstitious cover. I don't need you know it, this to me. That album has more filler than the other big four records from 1986 that we've mentioned. And I think part of that is because it's their second album. Like they're still kind of carving out their identity to a certain extent. Whereas, you know, Metallica's is their third album. They've kind of got it more figured out at that point because they've had a longer time to kind of uh, gel together as uh, as a band, as a unit.
1: Yeah. uh, shockingly I kind of agree with you Um, I I think I would also agree with you that um, Rust in Peace is Megadeth's masterpiece I was listening to um, Wake Up Dead again the other day, Wake Up Dead for me is up there with Disposable Heroes, it's just one of those songs, in, in the same way as Disposable Heroes made me a Metallica fan and to this day is probably my favorite metallica song um I, I feel the same about wake up dead because when you know just just the introduction to that song you know the drums just take your fucking head off and yeah. you don't recover and it's just an astonishing breathtaking piece of work but w- with rust in peace um you know you've got "Hangar 18 on there and "Hangar 18 is that's one of the greatest songs but when i was listening yeah. to I'm sure. I'm sure lots of other people have have had this thought as well, and I'm sure that I'm sure if you look online, there's probably people who work out a fantasy tracklist thing. But you kind of you kind of think, and for all I know, and I apologise if this is ground that you've trodden on on your show before. Um, you know this sort of fantasy scenario where Mustaine stays in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, if you you know imagine if you had an album that had Wake Up Dead and Disposable Heroes on it. I mean, that I would be. Well,
0: it, it's always fun to imagine, like, well, what would this song sound like with Heffield's playing rhythm guitar or Heffield's singing? Or what would this song sound like with a Mustaine solo on it? Or, um, you know, if you take, uh, like, a, I'll, I'll, for lack of a better phrase, I'll say generic Megadeth song and a generic Metallica song, but that maybe have like one or two cool riffs. Will those riffs work together to make something? less generic and cooler. But then, you know, it's like at the same time, I'm like, well, maybe if they were still a band, wake up dead, never sees the light of day. Maybe if they're a band, um, you know, Hangar 18, never sees the light of day. Maybe master Puppets never sees the light of day. You know, it's like it, it's fascinating to think about what, in my opinion, what these songs would sound like with the members playing, uh, if they were joined together as one band, but the songs would change, and ultimately, they're not going to be the songs that we know and love.
1: No, they're not. And in fact, actually, Wake Up Dead is a perfect example of that, because the thing that really makes Wake Up Dead is Gar Samuelson's drumming. And right. as much as I would defend Lars's drumming to the death, um, Lars was not... L- Lars on Wake Up Dead simply would not be as good as Gar Samuelson. So you're, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, it's it's kind of... It's an interesting fantasy, but would the songs be as good? Probably not. Probably not.
0: Well, it's like the... Megadeth always had this... Um, I think where they have their edge as a band is they kind of have this slight technical edge in terms of technically playing their instruments. They're very proficient. And you need... you know Gar Samuelson and Chris Poland came to them with this background in jazz fusion and having kind of like that loose uh but tight jazz drumming uh of Gar Samuelson really makes those first two records I think and you know it takes a special player uh, I think to kind of fit the Megadeth mold which is why perhaps other lineups have not worked out as well as a couple of those classic lineups right um but it, it takes like a special person, a special finesse, a special style to really elevate those songs. Whereas Lars Ulrich will be the first one to say he'll never be that player, you know. And I think how you broke down the band members before is pretty accurate. Where you know he, uh, Kirk Hammett's a good guitarist. Uh, they've always had good bassists. They've always had uh, Lars Ulrich is a proficient drummer. He's the perfect drummer for that band but in uh, James Hatfields kind of being like the the master of rhythm guitar riff writing not to discredit the other songwriting contributions from the other members but it's just you, you know you if you have a band that's you take the world's best musicians and you put them in a room to create a band it could sound like garbage. It takes a certain magic, a certain chemistry, and that's why when lineup changes happen, sometimes that magic is gone, or it, it, or at least it it changes. Um, And I just think, you know, when you take, when when you mix the pieces there, it's going to be something. It could be something really cool, but it's going to be something different and um and and to your point too about Lars Ulrich thank you for saying that because I always defend him and people are always like well can you imagine if Vinnie Paul played drums in Metallica I'm like it'd be sound cool as hell but it would not sound like Metallica
1: absolutely and 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 talking about Megadeth again and the musicians who are in Megadeth um in the Billboard article which I quoted a a couple of people earlier on um they also talked to Marty Friedman sean drover and chris broderick and i I think i I don't know if that was someone mischievous at billboard trying to get members of megadeth (laughs) um talking about metallica and all three of them rate it master of puppets as either their favorite album or one of their top three favorites and um marty friedman a a absolutely extraordinary musician i I think you know there's a strong case for saying that he is the the, the finest guitarist who's who's passed through those ranks.
0: Absolutely, he
1: he said um, when Master of Puppets came out, I went from being a fan to realizing just how big league metal could be done and presented to the mainstream while still sounding underground as hell. And I think that's a that's a really good um, that's a really good summation of the strength of Master of Puppets, where they did take this sound that was in phenomenally underground, yeah, and they they presented it to the mainstream, um, you know, via the Aussie tour or via their own hard work of just shoving it in people's faces and going, "Here is something you haven't heard before," right, um, and then becoming the mainstream. Um, I, I think, and I think that's a, a really Fascinating thing that they did, and no, no one else did it. You know, Slayer didn't do it. Megath- Megadeth didn't do it. Metallica were the band, the band who, against all the prevailing tra- trends that we've talked about at that time, and doing it in that you know two-year period when the biggest band on the earth, on Earth was Bon Jovi. Who, by the way, I'm not disrespecting because I think they did great stuff as well. But if you say that is the um, that's what you should be aiming for as a hard rock band that sells. And then Metallica come along and go, well, oh, no, fuck you. <laughs> We're going to, I'm gonna, we, we, here, here's, here's disposable, heroes own master of puppets and Orion instead. Here's the exact 180 degree opposite of that. Right. And then actually Metallica then also become this globe straddling multi, multi-platinum band as well. Um, and, they don't do it by sounding like Journey, which is what bon Jovi did. They did—they did it by sounding like Metallica, and that is the for, for all that I might be, you know, seem to be disrespecting Master of Puppets. That is that is the legacy of Master of Puppets. That's why Master of Puppets is so important. That's why 1986 is so important. Is that they made this massive statement, and it's like fuck you. This is what we're going to do, and this is what that's what they did, and they changed. Not just metal, they changed rock music forever.
0: I think that is the perfect way to end this episode about 1986 thrash Metal. Bruno McDonald, where can everybody find you online? And where can everybody find your book? Again, 666 songs to make you bang your head until you die. And please, if there's anything else you would like to plug at this time, please do so
1: no 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 you've been very very generous so um, uh, I'd love it if people would check out the book and I'd love it if people would tell me um, you know if they'd like to look through the book and say well you're nuts that you've picked completely the wrong songs
0: <laughs> um,
1: because it is a very personal perspective you know it's essentially my favourite hard rock and metal songs of the past you know 6 trillion years mm. um, so you can, you can get the book on all the obvious places your Barnes and Nobles, your um, Amazons and the publishers only website it's Lawrence King um and in terms of where you can find me online, um, I'm on Instagram and I'm posting covers and quotes from the record. And the uh, Instagram avatar is a is a picture of me in all in all my studded wristband glory. And on Twitter, I'm Bruno MacDonald1. And you'll find me uh, commenting on the on the Metallicast Twitter feed as well.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Bruno, for coming on Metallicast. Again, we'll do it a third time. We'll we'll Maybe next time we dive into the 1990, 91,
1: 92 era of metal. That would be great. And just before I go, I just want to say once again, I, I want to say thank you to you, Brandon, because you, I, I think um, people, including myself, I think probably underestimate exactly how much work goes into a show like yours. And you're not just getting on on you know skype or whatever and just chatting to people you put an immense amount of research and dedication and love into it and then also maintaining uh, your presence on the on the social media um, channels as well and i really enjoy this you know i i can't I, I'm, I'm a kind of late joiner to the Metallicast world so there's lots of, of the earlier episodes that i've still got to catch up on but I've been listening to it and I've been really enjoying what you do. And I know it's a lot of hard work for you and you've got to juggle that against, you know, your, your job and your family commitments as well. So I'd just like to say on behalf of all the Telecast um, listeners, thank you to you for what you do.
0: Thank you, Bruno. I appreciate that. And this is why Bruno's welcome back anytime. <laughs> all joking aside, thank you, Bruno. This was great. Thank you so much.
1: Cheers, Brandon. Take care.
0: Bye. A huge thank you to Bruno McDonald's for coming back on Metallicast. If you're interested in purchasing his book, 666 Songs That Make You Bang Your Head Until You Die, please check out the link in the episode description. Also, check out the links to give him a follow on social media as well. If you're not yet following Metallicast on social media, please do so at Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're new to the podcast... Please subscribe, download, leave a positive five-star review. All that goes a long way in helping the podcast continue to grow and helping me on my quest for world domination. One last plug before I leave you. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, and I know it was fantastic, I say this all the time, but I love that creeping death intro. All that is by one man, Hector Castro, who makes up bison out of the UK. Check out the links in the description to give him, your support. Check out his music; it is really fantastic stuff. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, mill up your ass! Yeah. Fans not experts.